Uh, turn with me to John chapter 17. And let me just say, band, yes. Yes. Let's, let's do that again. That was good. That was good. Um, Y'all have up to your game. I know for sure. Ladies, I, I hope that you sing like that to your babies because that would be phenomenal. <laughs> Turn with me to John chapter 17. We're starting the high priestly prayer. We're only going to cover the first five verses because here John, as John records this, Jesus prays for himself. He prays for the apostles. And then he prays for those who would believe because of the apostles' testimony. So it'll naturally break itself up into at least those three sections, though we, uh, we could certainly spend more time on it, as Alan and I had discussed this past week. We could spend weeks just in, in this prayer alone. So but, uh, let's read together uh, John 17, 1 through 5. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you show us Christ. That as we step into your word here and it unfolds before us, it may come out with clarity. You might draw back the curtain into the throne room of heaven and we would see Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, our great high priest, high and lifted up, seated at your right hand, ruling and reigning over all creation. And that we might see the precious affection that the Father, Son, and the, and the Spirit have for the church. We might see in, in particular the special affection that Christ has for his bride. Would this cause us to glorify you and to walk in a way, manner, in a manner worthy of the gospel? It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. It's always funny what kids ask for, isn't it? The uh, man once was putting his young son to bed, and um, it was a tender moment. He put his son to bed, and his son was just looking at him, and he said, he said, son, I want you to know that I love you. And he whispered in his ears, you're precious to me. He said, you're, you're very blessed. I thank you for the way that you acted at the store today when you had the opportunity to act out and pitch a fit, and, you know, you were very understanding. Thank you so much. You know, mommy and daddy love you. And he just, he goes on and on. And his son is just sitting there staring at him. It's a very tender moment. And when the father's done, he's quiet. And the son kind of leans over and he says, Daddy, can 
I ask you something? And the father's just, you know, his heart's pounding. He's, he's like, he's like, yes, yes, son. He says, can you hand me the iPad? <laughs> you never know what kids are going to ask, right? It's the same, it's so, you know, so often. I know that many of you can relate to that. I can too. Uh, and sometimes that kids ask hard questions. You know, they, they ask for, for difficult things. We were, last night we were trying to do t- uh, day two of our, of our weekly devotion. Um, and uh, we made it through two days, so <laughs> you know. Um, but uh, we were doing it last night, and uh, as does happen, you know, rabbit trails occur. And uh, this time it was, a, it was a good one. And Ellie asked, you know, uh, she said, Daddy, why did Jesus come as a man? And I tried to answer that, you know, as, as best I could from, you know, the scriptures to a five-year-old. And then she dug it further, and she said, no, 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 why didn't he come as half man and half woman? So that's a very good question, very, very logical question. Yes, you asked that, didn't you? You know, and so I had to dig into that. You know, it was a tough question to answer, but I felt like, you know, we, we, we dug into it, um, and I tried to answer as best I could, you know, for a five-year-old. Um, but, li- but my point is that, you know, when children ask questions, you know, we, we pay attention, and, and it's always a question, what are, they, what are they going to ask? What are they going to ask? And here we come to a point where, we ask, what does the divine son ask of the divine father? It's one of the few instances in scripture we get where we get a window into Jesus praying to the father. And this is a very special prayer because it is, as it's been called, the high priestly prayer. Where the son of God intercedes on behalf of the redeemed. And so he first prays for himself. And so, so it begs our question, what does, the, what does the Son of God ask for? What does he ask for moments, just hours before he goes to the cross? What does he pray for? Well, let's look at this and we'll take it in, in part. So after Jesus spoke these things and he concludes his, this long, ch- you know, this lengthy chapter, uh, multi-chapter section, of his conversation with the apostles. Remember, we're in the upper room. This is one instance in the, in the Gospels where, where John extends multiple chapters in basically one conversation that, that happens between Jesus and the disciples. And John's telling us, don't miss this. This is important. This is what the, this is what the Son of God, Jesus, who was the Christ, told us before he went to the cross. And he concludes with this prayer. So after Jesus spoke these things, lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Now, don't miss that. I know we've mentioned this before, but it's worth us pausing here. The hour has come. This moment isn't arbitrary. It's not that, oh, we finally arrived at this, you know, at this point, kind of surprisingly, but that time and circumstances are moving in lockstep in line with what God has planned throughout all of history the the history is about to turn upon the hinge of the cross this is what we get from all of the old testament everything has been leading up to this very point where the christ would come would go to the cross bear the sins of the world and then would be resurrected and new life would be given you get kind of a, a backwards look at this when you look into the New Testament and you see how did, how did the New Testament writers l- look back on, on this moment when Jesus went to the cross. I'll give you kind of a couple samples from Paul 
where Paul writes in Ephesians 3 and 11, and he speaks of the mysteries of Christ which were hidden up until now. Remember, he's speaking post-Pentecost, post his own conversion experience, where he's been given commission to speak and be a voice of the gospel to the Gentiles. So the mysteries of Christ have been hidden until now. Uh, namely, that through the death of Jesus and his resurrection, the Gentiles are now brought into the family of God. And Paul has the very privilege of speaking of these, what he calls, unfathomable riches of Christ. He has the privilege of pulling back the curtain in his preaching, in his evangelism, in his planning of churches to shed light on the administration of the Son as he now reigns at the right hand of God the Father. And he says all this glorifies the Father as it displays his manifold wisdom to all of creation through the church. That's how Paul looks back on what Christ did on the cross. And Paul looks back and says, what does it mean the hour has come? He said, this is what it means. This is, this is, what ha- this is what's happened now that Christ has died and been resurrected. He says also to the Romans, in Romans 15, 8, 9, and then verse 12, he says, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. The, the, the Old Testament promises that God had planned were coming to fruition through the cross. That's what he's saying. All of those Old Testament promises that were given but were not yet, they're now coming to fruition and being, ab- being able to be implemented and actually uh, occurring because of the cross. He says, and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. There shall come a root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. This is what's at stake when Jesus says, the hour has come. And so what does the son ask for? What does he ask the father for? He asks for glory. He says, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Notice here that there's a mutual glorification that occurs. The son seeks the glory of the father, and the father seeks the glory of the son. You see this also in verse 5, and we'll get to it. But I'll point it out now that what does Jesus ask for? He brackets his request in the middle, and we'll get to the middle in a second. Father, glorify me so that I may glorify you. And then in verse 5, he says, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. There is a shared glory within the Trinity and a mutual giving of honor, something we talked about in our men's night last Sunday, you know, that we see this within the Trinity, and there's not a competition here. And if we're created in the image of God and he's given us this charge to reflect him, then it bears that we ought to seek to mutually honor and dignify one another in our conduct and our speech. A.W. Pink says it well. He says, God is most glorified when the excellencies of his character are manifested to and acknowledged by his creatures. And this is what God is about in the gospel, in Jesus going to the cross, is redeeming a people for himself, right? And that this is where we connect the glory that, that Christ seeks. Look at verse 1 and 2. So Jesus asked that God would, that the Father would glorify him so that he may glorify the Father. 
even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to whom all you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So the son seeks to glorify the father by giving eternal life to those whom the father has given to him. Do you see that? That, that in the gospel, tr- uh, eternal life is given. Repentance and faith happens. And that torn, broken image of God that Alan talked about to the children, it is beginning to be restored in new life. But let's pause here and look at verse 2. Because it's, it's, it's worth pausing and looking at this to see just the depth of the, of the value of Christ and the sweet love and affection which Christ has for his bride. He says, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that's all people, that's all humanity, Christ has given authority over over all of humanity. But then he says that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And we have to, we have to deal with that. We have to, have to ask, what is, what is he saying here? And this is important because of the givens that are in this prayer. If you read through it, I encourage you to do this. You read through the entire prayer. Count how many times the word given or gives you know, any combination of that, any form of that is written. Ask what is given and who's the one who, who it's been to whom it's been given. The givens in this chapter are very important because they highlight the work of Christ as the great high priest. They highlight the value that God places upon the church, upon those whom he redeems. It has implications for us that if, if God has loved us in this way and has redeemed us through the cross, then we ought to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that he's called us to. But let's, let's look at this a little further. Because it looks as if what Jesus is saying is that there's all of humanity, but that, that there's a group to which the Father gives him that he gives eternal life. This is emphasized further in, in, in uh, verse 9. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on verse 9 because that'll be in weeks to come, but I do want to point to it because it, it just emphasizes this. Jesus says in verse 9, I ask on their behalf. He's talking specifically here about the apostles. Notice Judas isn't in the room here. He's already gone. He's talking about the apostles, and then he'll link this later towards the end of the prayer with all who will believe because of their testimony. He says, I don't ask on their behalf. Here's the great high priest who's interceding for the church, for his bride. I don't ask on, uh, on their behalf. Uh, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So the question is, What did Jesus actually accomplish on the cross? Didn't Jesus die to save everyone? We would say in this, biblically, the value of the resurrection is sufficient to save the world a hundred times over. And we all agree upon this, that the the value of Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient 
to save a hundred worlds. And yet not everyone is saved. And that the benefits of the gospel, of the resurrection, they extend beyond salvation into a broken world. You don't have to go far to see common grace that's experienced by people who are very much lost. To see gospel grace that rolls over and the benefits of that are experienced by those who are lost. And so we would say that these are true in a general sense of Christ's work on the cross. But everyone must answer this question, why are not all men saved? Why are not all men saved? What did Jesus' death on the cross actually do? What did his atonement accomplish? We could say three things, and, I, and I'm not going to try and dive into this you know, in, in, in much detail, but I want, like I said, I want to pause here for a moment because I think if we look at this and we ask, you know, ask hard questions, but what Christ reveals to us is the depth of his love for us. So what did his atonement accomplish? It accomplished redemption, the purchasing of people from the slavery to sin to the glory of God. This word uh, redemption is oftentimes used in, in the sense of slaves. We might actually uh, you know, better understand it as if you were to go and sell something at a pawn shop. You know, let's say that you needed, you needed some extra money. You went and sold something that was precious to you at a pawn shop. And then later, you, uh, 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 you sold it to a pawn shop. And then later, after you had acquired more money, after a paycheck or you know, whatever, you went back and you redeemed that valuable object for the price that you purchased it with plus interest. You know, this is the way that works. So, so that's, in a sense, a better understanding of how we understand redeemed. And this is what Christ's death on the cross accomplished, the redemption of a people for God. It also accomplished propitiation, that the wrath of God was propitiated. It was removed from people and was placed upon Christ the Son of God, the wrath that if you, have, if you have faith in Christ and you've repented of your sins and turned and trusted in Christ, God's wrath no longer rests upon you because it, re it rested upon Christ on the cross. He said, your sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. You're now clothed in, in my righteousness. You may stand before God holy and blameless because of what I did. It also accomplished reconciliation, that it made right a relationship that was broken. An extremely valuable relationship. As Alan spoke this morning, that if we are the crown of God's creation, created in His image, the only beings created in His image, then the relationship with, with which His image bears have with Himself is extremely valuable. And the cost of tarnishing and breaking that image is extremely and phenomenally high. Just look at what did it cost for uh, uh, for God to redeem the church, the very Son of God. Nothing less and nothing more if it, because there is no higher price. Greater love had no man than this, that a man didn't lay down his life for, uh, for his friends. And Christ loved us even when we were yet enemies. So this is what Christ accomplished. This is what Christ accomplished. It's like if you have a friend Let's say, who gets in trouble with the law. 
and gets thrown in jail and there's a bail placed on your friend. And you love your friend and you go and you pay the bail money and it sets your friend free. And this is what Christ did for us on the cross is paid that penalty that we might go free from sin. But the question is, did it provide the possibility of salvation or the actuality of salvation? John Owen ca categorizes this well. He says, Jesus either paid for all the sins of all men, all the sins of some men, or paid for some of the sins of, some of all men. Now, if Jesus paid for the sins of all men, that would be universalism. If all sins for all people were all paid for, then everyone would go to heaven, right? And we don't have to go far in the scriptures to see that that is not the case. But what if, if he paid for some of the sins of all men? See, that this would be the possibility of salvation that's actually actualized by faith. We've heard it before, and you may have even said it before. I know I have. That Jesus died for everyone. He redeemed everyone. He propitiated God's wrath for everyone. He reconciled everyone to God everywhere. But they must choose him in order to be saved. This sounds logical. You go back to our, ba our Baal Island analogy. If you were to go home, no, and you, let's say your, your spouse says, well, you know, where, where, where is your friend? Where, where were you? Well, I went and I bailed Tim out of jail. Tim is a fictional character, of course. <laughs> no, I went and bailed him out of jail. Well, where is he? Well, he's still in jail. Well, why? You bailed him out. Well, he chose to be there. Now, that logically makes sense, but this is where our analogy sort of falls apart. Because here's a key factor. Unbelief is not a neutral action. It's not a neutral action like a choice between, well, do I paint this painting with blue or do I paint it with yellow? Do I choose an apple to eat at lunch or do I choose a, an orange? It's a sin. Unbelief is a sin. So did Jesus die for the sin of unbelief? If not, then he only died for some of the sins of all men and we're left holy to ourselves to complete that work of salvation however if jesus died for all the sins unbelief included then we're at all the sins of son those whom the father has given the son i know we might look at that and say well that's not fair but keep in mind the doctrines of Scripture and all of Scripture hold together. They are links in a chain. That if we're dead in our sins, Christ must save us completely. Fairness would be that everyone goes to hell. This demonstrates God's great love for us, the richness of His mercy and grace that He would save anyone and, nothing that, uh, no, and there's nothing for Christians to boast in because of that. God could have said to all whom I give to you, and here's the marker, they wear a blue button. But notice that the marker upon which God has given is faith 
that signifies that this person is mine. The very thing that you cannot boast in because the object of faith or the value of its object is what it puts its trust in, which is Christ. And so this could give us courage in our witnessing. Give the gospel to all. Sow seeds. This is what we're commanded to do. Go out and sow seeds in the, in the parable. Sow seeds and then go to bed. That's what the farmer does. He sows seeds. He doesn't know which ones are going to grow. He doesn't know which, but he still sows seeds. So go out and sow seeds. Pray for all. Don't tell them Christ died for you. I've heard this, and like I said, I've been guilty of this before. Christ died for you. It's not a biblical concept. Nowhere in the scriptures do you see that that's given. Think of Peter. When Peter's given his sermon, I mean, he's, he's preaching the gospel right there. And he's talking about what Christ has done. And you've put them to death. And, the, and, the, and the, 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 his audience is struck at the heart. And they say, what shall we do? He says, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Don't tell them that Christ died for you. Rather, that Jesus will save forever those who repent of their sins and trust in his shed blood. The gospel is a command with a promise. And notice here how eternal life is revealed. Where Jesus says, even as you have given him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, out of your grace and out of your mercy, that he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Here is the marker for those whom the Father gives to the Son. This is the marker for the church with a big C, church universal, for the bride of Christ. That's who he's praying for, is his bride. This is who he's interceding for. This is eternal life, that they may know you. Listen to other words from Scripture. The, uh, Psalm 9.10 says, Those who know your name will put their trust in you. 1 John 2.3 says, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. This is how eternal life is revealed. These are these effects of saving faith. And not only that, that you are the only true God. And, that G and Jesus Christ, this is, the, this, is, this is the only time in the Gospels where Jesus refers to himself with that title, with Jesus Christ, that he is, the, he is Jesus. He's the Son of Man and the Son of God. And that he is Christ. He is the divinely appointed Messiah that was promised from the Old Testament for the people of God. as you look at this, I hope you look at this and you see the particular redemption that's given here. That Christ didn't, he's not praying and interceding that there's this some sort of amorphous group out there that, that God knows about that will choose him eventually in the future, but Jesus doesn't know who they are, and so he's just kind of, you know, he's, he's, he's trusting there's going to be people who will fill that gap. 
No, no, no. If you know Christ and you trust in Him, He knows your name. His blood was shed for you. If you've repented of your sins and trusted in Him. The wrath of God no longer rests upon you. Christ intercedes for you. Look at the love which the high priest has for you. That he would pray that the Father would give those whom he desires. He prays for his bride. His church. Specific people from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation. A countless multitude on and on through the ages. And he's patient with us. I mean, we're what? Without with thousands of years past when Christ died. And we'll sit there some days and we'll go, Lord, why don't you come now? Come now, Lord Jesus. I'm tired of this. And he says, no, no, no. There are still people whom I've yet. My bride is not complete. They're not yet born. That's when we, when we preach. They're not yet born. Maybe they are born. They haven't heard. God hasn't called them to himself. And he, that's why he delays. That's why he delays his coming because the church of God is not complete. And he will redeem a specific people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Countless multiple, multitude on and on through the ages till all the ransomed church of God is saved to send no more. This is the work of the high priest. This is the work that Jesus has come to do. It's a specific, particular redemption that is full of mercy and of grace and of love. But Jesus continues. So so Christ asked the Father to glorify the Son by completing the work that that the Son has come to do, by going to the cross, that He might be the perfect sacrifice. He might redeem a people for Himself, be buried and raised again on the third day, showing victory over the grave, that death would no longer have a hold on Him because He was the perfect Son of God. And that He would then be seated at the right hand of the Father, given the keys of authority over all of creation. And the Father might give him his bride. This is what Jesus prays for. This is what he's praying for. And he knows, he knows it with confidence. Look what he says in verse 4. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. He's not done yet. Right? I mean, he's not going, he's not going to the cross. Jesus, how can you say that? Your work's not finished. But he speaks with such confidence. He speaks with such confidence because he knows it's going to be completed. Right? It's not done. Pilate still has to say, I find no fault in him. You're, you're guiltless, and yet you're going to go to the cross. He's still got to suffer and hang on the cross. He's still got to go into the garden and plead with agony, Lord, not my will but yours. Do you think Jesus re- wrestled with unbelief? Oh, yeah, he did. Did he sin? No. Oh, but he felt the weight of it. Not your will, but not my will, but yours. 
You see the humanity of the very Son of God coming out. He's still got to go to the cross. The Roman centurion still has to say, when Christ dies and lightning strikes, the veil's torn in the temple, all these things happen, there are shakes. The Roman centurion, who is who's a lost Gentile, still has to say, surely this was the Son of God. All of these things still have to take place, and yet Christ speaks with confidence, knowing the Father's going to carry this out. He's going to bring to fruition all that he has planned. None will be lost. Isn't this what he says of his sheep previously in John? All that you've given me, I've lost none. Who are those? Those are his sheep. Those are the ones whom the Father gives to him. This is the church. What grace that is to know when you've got a rough day and you look at your day and you go, I wasn't much of a Christian today. You battle thoughts in your head that you're like, these are not holy thoughts. These are not honorable. Lord, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. And Christ says, you don't have to be. I've accomplished it. Your sins are paid for in full. I'm interceding on your behalf as long as you draw near to me. That's not a hard thing to do. Come to me, all you who are weary laden. Burden, I'll give you rest for your soul. Jesus speaks with certainty about what will be accomplished. And then finally, verse 5. That there is glory in rejoicing over the redemption of his people. This is really the final point and kind of the, the, the culmination of, of what's in here. That the glory that the Father and the Son seek is joyfully rejoicing over the redemption of his people. Look at what he says. He says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. One that speaks to the eternality of the Son of God. You have a hard time trying to argue that Jesus was a mere man when he says, I existed before the world was. And that he existed with the Father. And there was glory that was there. There was glory that was there. What, what is that? What is that? Well, let me point you to a couple other scriptures. Because I think what he's saying here, and in context with what he's praying for himself, his sole focus is on the redemption of, of his bride, of the church, of a people for his own possession. And that the glory that he desires is the joy of rejoicing over those whom he's redeemed. Let me give you a couple scriptures. Hebrews 12, 2. Hebrews 12 follows Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith where so many are pulled out in the Old Testament and, and shown for their faith. And what is the faith that they have? That their hope was not in the things of this world, but that in the promise that God had given. That's what they hoped for. That's why their lives looked different. That's why they did some crazy stuff like leave a comfortable, great homestead and trek into a foreign country. That's what Abraham did. To build a boat nobody's seen water or rain all of these things 
or what's in that chapter. They're all looking for what God has promised. And then in chapter 12, we read that of Christ, but for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God the Father. What is that joy? There is fellowship with the Father, but it's that the work has been completed. It's the work that's been completed. All that time from eternity past has been leading up to is brought to that hinge and the door is opened. When Christ has died and is seated at, his right front, right, at the right hand of the Father, he has taken possession of that which is his by right. And, and, and the author of Hebrews says it was for the joy of that, that givenness that the Father would give to him. It was for joy that he endured the cross. Don't miss this, church, that the great high priest takes joy in saving you. You may look at yourself and say, what is here? There's nothing here for you to like. I get frustrated with my kids. I'm not gentle and compassionate with my spouse. I have evil thoughts about people at work. I'm not talking about you, Alan. I don't know. I mean, you, th- you know, insert. Christ takes joy in redeeming you. This is the phenomenal love and mercy of God that when we were yet sinners, enemies of God, he saved us. Didn't give the potential that we might be saved. He actually accomplished it. But for the joy set before him. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with shouts of joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Isn't this what Paul writes in the New Testament, that angels shout joyfully when someone comes into the family of God? Look at John 17 at the end of this prayer in verse 25 he says O righteous father now remember he's prayed for himself he's prayed for the apostles who will take the message to the nations and now he's praying for the nations so righteous father although the world has not known you yet I have known you and these have known you sent me these are the apostles I've made your name known to them and will make it known so that, conjunctions are so important, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. So Christ has made himself known to the apostles that they might then turn around and make him known in all his fullness because that's not going to be revealed and made known to them until Christ dies on the cross as resurrection the Holy Spirit's given at Pentecost. That's when they look back and realize all that Jesus had done in full. He's made his no- made known to them so that they might then turn around and make him known to the nations. I mean, this is what the Bible and the Gospels do, right? They were written so that we might know. Why? So that the same love that the Father and the Son share might be in the church. So there's love there, but there's also joy. Look at John 15. 
John 15, 10 and 11. Jesus is speaking to his apostles. He's speaking to the disciples. Same upper room, same context. He says, these things I've spoken to you. Well, let me back up go to 10. It says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. See the connection there with abiding in the love of Christ, commandment keeping, that's repentance and faith, that we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, and love. Those are all connected. And then he says, these things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. The love of the Father and the Son for the church, those whom the Father gives to the Son, those whom the Son intercedes for, come to completion when people repent and believe in the gospel. Do you see that? That's, that's the emphasis here. When that broken image is redeemed, is, is restored, and in the process of being restored because of faith in, the, in Christ. And note here too, that same joy of God becomes the joy of the church. He says that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. Do you remember what John the Baptist said in John 3 when he talks about seeing Jesus when he sees Jesus and he says his joy is made full and he compares it to the friend of a bridegroom the friend of a groom who's waiting for the groom to come now if you remember and you may you may you may know you may not but in, in a Jewish wedding there was a wait there was a time of waiting and the groom was away and the bride had to make herself wet ready. But this is the, mm, this is not in my notes. So <laughs> the, 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 the ten, I think it's the ten, ten virgins that have the lamps, you know, and they're not, they're not ready, right? That's the, whole, that's the whole point. They're supposed to be ready. They don't know when the groom's going to come, and so they've got to be ready. So the, so the groom was away, and then there was a triumphal entry of the groom to come and get his bride. And what John is saying is he's the friend of the bridegroom. And he's been anxiously awaiting Jesus to come. And now he's come. He says it's just like the bridegroom who's excited and anxious and waiting for the, for the groom to come and take his bride. That the marriage would be complete. And when he hears him, he says the time has come, the hour has come. And he's excited. His joy is made full. Because all that he's been anticipating, all that he's been waiting for is now coming. His joy is made full. Jesus says... Let your joy be made full when you see people come to Christ. When you see them, because the gospel is at work. The plan of God to bring about saving a people for himself is in the process. Seek that joy. Abide in that love. And so this is the joy. This is the glory which the Father and the Son seek and the Spirit. That they would rejoice with joy over 
his saved people. Can we make a couple points of application and we'll close. If you look at what Jesus says here, he's got a time of danger and pain and suffering and he's standing at the threshold of it. How does he overcome that? How does he overcome that? By looking to future joy and future glory. There's a lesson for us that when we have moments where we're put on the threshold and we're anxious, how do we overcome danger and fear? By looking to future glory, which is grounded in a present hope. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, look to the things that are seen rather than to look to the things which are not seen rather than to things which are seen. We have an eternal perspective. And the hope that we have in the gospel gives us courage to move forward in the midst of danger and fear. Secondly, seek the glory of God over the glory of men. And whatever we do should be done for the glory of God. And, and I know sometimes that's so easy to just put it as a bumper sticker or a hashtag or whatever. But we should think deeply about what that means. I mean, it's the whole point of when we want to spend five verses, let's walk through them. That we would think deeply about this. That we seek the glory of God as he rejoices in the carrying out of, of his plan to redeem a people for himself, the bride for the church, right? Isn't that this what uh, Peter writes? And he says that you were, uh, oh, I'll find it because it's good. Hang with me. First Peter 2.9, Paul says, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's joy and there's glory in that. Not for yourself, for sure, but that Christ would be exalted, that he would be magnified. Right? I mean, if the, if the Son asked the Father to glorify the Son so that the Son might glorify the Father, then it shouldn't it be the task of the church to seek to glorify the Son rather than ourselves. Seek the glory of God over the glory of men in whatever you do. So I hope this is helpful as you think about and see the richness of the great high priest who intercedes for all those who draw near to him, as Hebrews says. That the Father and the Son take joy in you you've repented of your uh, sins and put your faith in Christ. And for all that do, we might hear of someone who we thought was just the scum of the earth and the Lord saves them. And we might just scoff at it and go, well, I don't think that's real. But if the Lord has legitimately saved them, we ought to have joy over that. I know we come into some contact with some people that we're just like, you know, I don't feel like they're worthy of being saved. But texts like this should remind us, no, because I'm not worthy of being saved. I'm no better than this person.
and that God has actually accomplished what the Father has given Him. And it demonstrates as there is a particular redemption that God had in mind. It demonstrates the rich love and mercy and grace that God has for us. So let me pray for us. And then uh, I'll close. I've got a benediction from, uh, from Acts 2. So let me pray for us. Father God, Lord, I hope I've been faithful in unfolding your word to you. You've taught me much through these few verses. And I'm humbled to consider the value of Jesus, the great high priest who has authority over all flesh. He could do anything he wants. And yet it is part and parcel with his character and his nature as the great mediator to intercede for those whom you have given to him. Those whom you've given to him, not because they've earned it, not because they were smart enough to figure the gospel out, not because they were lucky, they drew a number out of a lottery, but out of your sheer mercy, out of your grace and out of your love, you said to the Son, this one's mine. Guard this one, protect this one, intercede for this one. Save this one. We should marvel at that. If we really feel the weight of sin, if we really feel the temptation to sin and go uh, after other idols. It should draw us to the cross time and time again to marvel and to wonder and to praise you. And Father, I thank you. I thank you that the gift of eternal life is revealed and we can have hope and confidence that we have it because we know you, the only true God, through Jesus Christ, who's your divine Son and the perfect human and the appointed Messiah and Savior of believing Jew and Gentile that makes up the church, the bride of Christ. What comfort and encouragement it is to know these things and to rest in the fact that you take joy over us, even when we are not worthy. Father, would you help me help my children understand that, that even when I have to discipline them, even when I'm hard on them, they would know Daddy loves them because they're mine, because they're my children. Father, you love the church because they're your children. We, we long await the day where Jesus will say, as the author of Hebrews says in chapter 2, he stands before you and he opens his arms and he says, Behold, I am the children whom you've given to me. Father, may we be counted among that number. 
Would you reveal yourself more and more to us, giving us more and more confidence? Strengthen our faith. Help our unbelief. And give us courage to give the gospel to everyone that you might call more into the sheepfold, into the family, and complete the bride. Until Jesus comes, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'll leave you with this benediction from Acts 2, 33 through 39. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, know for certain that God has made him Lord and Christ. And you, having repented of sins and put your faith in Him, know that for you, and the promise is for you and all who are far off, as many as the Lord will call to Himself. And you have a blessed day and a blessed week. You're dismissed.